This yes. is hell. Okie doke. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. And we're going back 20 years and a little over a week ago to look at the grief, the anger, the hatred, the racism, the horrors, the violence, the torture, the death, and the criminality of the U.S. war on Iraq, a war that was entirely unnecessary and completely avoidable. Sure, most media outlets have moved on from their coverage of the 20-year anniversary of the war on Iraq, which makes sense as most media not only supported the war, but they helped the Bush administration lie us into a war. But this is not the media. This is hell. And our guests here on the show, dating back to 9-11, definitely got this one right when it comes to arguing that this war was unnecessary and completely avoidable and would likely lead to a power shift toward Iran. Look, we're not doing a victory lap because we're, we're, we were actually correct, or at least our guests were correct about the war on Iraq. But being correct about the war on Iraq, it's not a good thing for a number of reasons. First... There's the devastation wrought upon the people of Iraq. Second, there's the forever nature to the war on Iraq, as Iraqis today still live in a state of war. And the U.S. is still playing an active role with 2,500 so-called U.S. military advisors still on the ground stationed in Iraq. Third, there's the destabilization of the entire region and how many Iraqis now long for a new authoritarian leader in Iraq. And throughout the region, people have learned to associate poverty, corruption, unfairness, inequality, sectarian violence, and death with democracy, which dozens if not hundreds of guests accurately predicted would happen. In fact, we wish we weren't right about Iraq, as those who were completely wrong about WMD and their military assessment of any war on Iraq and now are now being rewarded with great career success in both politics and the media, despite being completely wrong about the war on Iraq. Here in the U.S., if you are completely wrong in your analysis, you are still rewarded because you supported the right side when you were absolutely wrong. Meanwhile, our guests got it right and we're still broke in a few minutes we will be speaking with Murtaza Hussein a reporter at The Intercept whose writing focuses on national security and foreign policy Murtaza is on today to talk about his most recent writing including how Iran won the US war in Iraq a trove of secret intelligence cables obtained by The Intercept reveals Tehran's political gains in Iraq since the 2003 invasion and trauma never goes away as America forgets Iraq war stays with U.S. veterans. Over the weekend, Murtaza also posted the Intercept article after Tide of Memoirs from Americans and Iraqi journalist offers inside account of war's destruction, which is a fascinating perspective, and we're actually considering having that author on the show when we come back. Follow Murtaza on Twitter at M-A-Z-M. Hussein. That's Maz M. Hussein. Support his work on Substack at mazmhussein.substack.com. Hussein is spelled H-U-S-S-A-I-N. Again, that's follow uh, Mutaza, Murtaza on Twitter at Maz M. Hussein. And support his work on Substack at mazmhussein.substack.com. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alexander Jerry. How's your week going so far, Alex? Uh, that answers it. Is that a Coke Zero by chance? Uh, no. Uh, it's good to be back. Have you moved on to another drink? 
Uh, yeah, it was in the fridge. Oh, I see. That's yeah, what you moved on to. Back. Uh, seems like coming home. That still smells like gas in this apartment. That's weird because we got a new stove. Uh, still smells like gas. It's uh, <laughs> not a good there's thing. There's still a "You Are Beautiful" sign on the uh, lid of the toilet, <laughs> and there's still a uh, unopened, I believe, three-pound jar of cracked green olives sitting in the fridge. <laughs> yes, I've seen that for quite a while. It's like I, don't I never know, left. I don't know what that's about. I got to go through that refrigerator because I think. Uh, Lindsay was storing food to be composted in the freezer. I'm not too sure exactly what she was going on there. She had a whole food experiment, so we got to go through the fridge and see what the hell's going on in there. Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what are you repressing? What are you repressing? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask. The coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Held Guide to the 21st Century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisisheld.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisisheldradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisisheldradio, or you can email chuck at thisisheld.com. But we must have your answer as soon as possible because we are announcing the winner of this week's question from hell today following our conversation with Murtaza. For those of you who were looking forward to Jeff's moment of truth this week, he is not going to be able to do it this week, but however, he will be back on Wednesday, April 12th, I believe it is, to do the moment of truth. And as we mentioned earlier this week, we are very sad to report that producer Lindsay Gorey has moved on from our show, and we wish her all the happiness in the world, as we simply cannot thank her enough for all of the hard work she put into the show. She has left an indelible mark on the show, and we are much better for it. But this means This Is Hell is, again, looking for new producers. And who knows, maybe our new producer is you. If you can make it to our studio at 2251 West Devon Avenue, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood and work from 9.30 a.m. to about 1 p.m. any one or more days, Monday through Thursday each week, and believe in what we do on the show, you too can be a part of our crew. As a producer, you will help in deciding who to have on the show, confirm confirm interviews with guests, contribute during the show. Following the shows, you will uh, prepare episodes for podcasts and post the show at our site as well as on social media. You will also be rewarded for your services as we are doing our best to provide producers with a living wage. If you are interested, email me at chuckatthisishell.com. By becoming part of our staff, you will also get a number of perks, including access to a professional studio for you to engage in your own projects, whatever they happen to be. If you are a musician, you can use this space to do your recordings. If you are a podcaster, then and you're really tired of doing your show in an acoustically challenged place like your bedroom or living room or basement, Join us on This Is Hell and get and we will definitely support your podcast and promote your podcast. But get this, with your support, like I said, we actually pay our producers. Go figure. If you are interested in joining This Is Hell, email me at chuck at com and tell us a little about yourself and why you like the show so much that you'd like to be a part of it. Coming up, there are no winners in the U.S. war on Iraq, except maybe maybe Iran. We'll have This Week in Rotten History. Alex will be sharing the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we will be revealing 
this week's winner. And we'll tell you what's happening this week on the show as well as next week. Look around. This is hell. And if you do take that moment to look around, you will notice how quickly the U.S. media ended their look back at the war on Iraq in order to continue denying their role and lying the majority of the U.S. public into a completely avoidable and completely unnecessary war. But what they can't erase, all they are doing their best to do so, what they cannot erase is the suffering of U.S. military veterans who are traumatized by war and feel betrayed by their nation and its leaders, the suffering of the Iraqi people with countless displaced, injured, and dead, and what likely may be the death of any chance of a democratized Middle East. Joining us is Murtaza Hussein, reporter at The Intercept, whose writing focuses on national security and foreign policy. Check out all of his most recent writing on the 20th anniversary of the Iraq War at The Intercept. You can follow Murtaza on Twitter at Maz M. Hussein and definitely support his work on Substack at mazmhussein.substack.com. Welcome to This Is Hell, Murtaza. Thanks for having me. Great having you on the show. So you mentioned uh, Tim McLaughlin, who commanded a Marine Corps tank platoon. And uh, you write that 20 years since U.S. troops first invaded the U.S. war in Iraq has become a faded memory to many Americans. For Iraqis themselves, the consequences of the war are still an unavoidable part of their daily lives. But trauma also lingers for a group of Americans like McLaughlin, who are unlikely to forget the war as long as they live. Former U.S. service members. More than a million Americans are estimated who have served in Iraq over the course of more than a decade, mostly in non-combat roles. Alongside millions of Iraqis who were killed or displaced by the conflict, thousands of Americans died or were wounded in Iraq. To what extent do you think the public here in the States is in denial about the trauma of war, whether that trauma is inflicted on U.S. military personnel or inflicted on, in this case, innocent Iraqi civilians who, as casualties of war, always outnumber military personnel deaths. That's the case with every war. Civilians always outnumber military personnel when it comes to casualties. So how much does the public recognize the trauma of war, and do we consider that when war is looming? You know, it's interesting. Uh, there was a time when it was not the case that uh, civilian deaths tended to outnumber military casualties so much. I think if you look at World War One, for instance, and wars before that, people used to go out in the field and fight armies to fight each other separate from cities and so forth. And then I think over the course of the century, you saw more and more uh, wars, which are total wars, you could describe, which took place between cities or in cities. And I think the Iraq and the counterinsurgency wars were the apotheosis of that, in a way you could say. They were the apex of that phenomenon. It was fought almost entirely in civilian areas uh, between the U.S. military and no one really knows, between militias, people not in uniform, and so forth. It wasn't a conventional war in that sense. And as a result, a lot of innocent people were killed uh, because inevitably they were going to be if the U.S. chose to fight a war, fight a war like they did in that sense, and, and they did. Um, so, you know, during the conflict, it's not really known how many people died. On the U.S. side, we could say maybe 4,500 soldiers and uh, a comparable number of contractors were killed. And on the Iraqi side, deaths, displacements, injuries, uh, definitely well into the millions uh, combined. And uh, no one has accurate figures because very early on, also, the U.S. said they were not going to keep track of uh, body counts on the Iraqi side. So no one really knows, but it's a very, very... Uh, 
stark and uh, gigantic figure. And the effect of that on Iraq is still felt today. If you go to Iraq today, if you talk to people of the war, you know, it's a very, very bitter memory of uh, the occupation and what took place. But I think that for most Americans, save for those who actually uh, took part in the war, because they were soldiers, they're contractors, uh, I think a lot of it has faded from memory. There's not really a lot forcing people to pay attention. But interestingly, you know, the war in Iraq, it kind of never ended. It continued, started in 2003. Arguably, it started in the 90s, with the first Gulf War. And it reached another peak during the war against ISIS and the destruction of many Iraqi cities and slavery and other horrible things that took place during that time. Uh, but it's in many ways only in a lull. It's not really a stable or uh, safe place in many for many reasons in Iraq today. It's simply a place which has suffered a lot of violence now is trying to grow up its way towards a more stable equilibrium. So for the people in Iraq, to what extent then has the war actually ended? I mean, it seems like this is just a continuation. I would even go back to the 1989 Gulf War and move throughout the uh, Clinton sanction regime, the Bush and Clinton sanctions regime, uh, and say that this is a war that started in 1989 and is still going on here in 2023, a 34, 35-year-old war. Is there something wrong with that analysis? Do you think that the war is still continuing and this is one long war, at least to the Iraqis who are still in Iraq and seeing it on the ground? Well, totally. They, they experienced the entire uh, the entire conflict as one very long conflict starting at that time. Uh, in, you know, even in the 80s, there was the Iran-Iraq war, which, uh, you know, a million Iraqis died in that conflict. And the U.S. famously supported both sides at various times of the conflict in, in different ways. Um, so, you know, the, Iraq has basically been in a state of, of either economic or military conflict since for about 40 years now. And in a way, it's only getting worse because the battles have moved into Iraqi cities. They've been, a civil war was generated about three years after the U.S. invaded Iraq and dissolved the military and institutions. And that civil war has never really ended between uh, Sunnis and Shias. So Shias have kind of won the war now. And the uh, fight against ISIS was the last very ugly stage of that conflict. So, you know, I, I, could, I guess you could say now there's a lull because there's not any major fighting to be done right now because basically one side was crushed. But it's you kind of hope to see a stable political order emerge at that point where you can see that the conflicts and instability are going to be done for good. That doesn't seem to be on the horizon. And, you know, having a dictatorship is also not very good. There's a lot of violence entailed in that as well, too. But uh, the violence, you could say, is a bit more predictable. You can know where the lines are in most cases and when not to cross them. Uh, most people hope for that sort of outcome. Uh, when you have a civil war or you have a condition of anarchy, it's very hard to know how to be safe, or what to do, or what not to say, what to say uh, to avoid uh, you know, being killed or being detained or something like that. Uh, I think the Iraqi is still in that state of uh, arbitrary rule uh, today. And I should have actually included, you're absolutely right, the Iran-Iraq War of the 1980s from 1980 to 1988, where well over a million on both sides uh, died in that war. Um, so uh, when it comes to, if you consider that war and how the United States was arming both sides in that war, has the U.S. foreign policy goal been since 1980 to not just 
destroy Iraq, not just have vengeance against uh, Iraq for the overthrow of the you know of the uh, of the Shah, well in Iran, uh, but uh, in Iraq for uh, the overthrow. Uh, in general, do you think that this is an, an ongoing American U- U.S. policy to make both Iraq and Iran dysfunctional states? I, I would say so. I think that if you look at the statements by U.S. officials sometime around the start of uh, the Iraq War. They're very keen on expanding that conflict to Syria and to Iran and other places in the region uh, because they were hoping that the Iraq invasion would go very smoothly. It didn't go smoothly. I think partially uh, the Iran's decision to fight the U.S. in Iraq through its proxies was a result, big reason why it didn't go smoothly for that reason. Um, but, you know, they still have never abandoned uh, that desire to reshape the Middle East and to topple these governments and impose governments that they prefer and they're pursuing that today in terms of economic warfare in Iran. There's very, very serious sanctions on Iran at present. Uh, they result in a lot of civilian harm. And they've also destabilized the government to a significant degree because the currencies collapse and people are in a very desperate situation today. Uh, and it's also a very repressive government in many ways. But then the having a good economy often ops, offsets the repression and you see it in other places as well, too. So I think the U.S. is still never really abandoned. It's very aggressive. You could say neoconservative approach to the Middle East, uh, which is why it's been one reason region where the U.S. presence has not been a very happy or welcome one. You also point out that the veteran, the uh, Marine tank commander McLaughlin, who is suffering from PTSD, you quote him saying, the idea of going to war is horrible. When people are talking about it on TV, they're talking about something that is not real to them. When it becomes real to you, it stays real to you for your whole life. For me, the experience was violent, stressful, and sad. I truly believe that we were the best in the world at our job and that, and what we did. Unfortunately, the job of the Marine Corps was killing people and destroying stuff. So my father was a veteran of the U.S. military, and he was always willing to support any war, including supporting the war in Vietnam, at least for a time. But when we were going to be going to war against Iraq after the uh, attacks of 9-11, my father said, you don't go to war because you can. You go to war because you must go to war. And he was very much opposed to that war. It was the first time I'd ever heard him in his life be opposed to an American war. What keeps war from being real to, as McLaughlin describes them? People talk about it on, t- on TV. What keeps us, the American public, from recognizing the war as being real, as McLaughlin calls it? Yeah, so there's a lot of sanitization and uh, jingoism around conflict and you know, Gulf War was famously, there's a famous book by uh, Jean Baudrillard. It's called The Gulf War Did Not Happen. He's like a French uh, philosopher. He kind of made the point that the war was only experienced in one direction. I think we lost him. You want to know? Murtaza, right when you said uh, the war was going in one direction, uh, we lost you for a second. So I'm sorry. Could you repeat yourself? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Well, you know, for Americans, the war was experienced very much uh, almost like a video game. It was on television. Uh, there was selected clips released of uh, footage that was almost depicted like the is it, is it disembodied the figures or 
spinning around a screen and blowing up and so forth. It wasn't really uh, real and flesh and blood. There was not the smell or the sound or the, uh, the feelings of, of conflict experienced directly. And the media played a very important role in actually uh, proselytizing that image of war to the public. So that's still to this day how most people think of war. They kind of think of it as distance in a video game. But I do think that the efforts of sanitization of war is somewhat, uh, on the part of the media, somewhat weakened because we have alternate channels now. We have social media. We have uh, more citizen journalism, citizen experiences uh, able to be broadcasted from Iraq and other places such that I think that maybe war is a bit more real to people. They may understand a bit more that it's a bad thing and uh, not the neatly packaged uh Newly packaged uh, sort of policy that uh, governments try to portray it as, uh, but yeah, I think that if you talk to the McLaughlin or Iraqis or others, like they'll tell you how horrible it is up close to see the death and destruction and the stress of, of conflict every day, and still that's something which I think most Americans don't appreciate. And you mentioned, you also quote uh, McLaughlin saying, I didn't decide to invade Iraq. I have no negative feelings towards Iraqis at all. The people I served with who are alive, I love and adore. The people who are dead and gone, I love and adore. Where I do get frustrated is with the people who chose to do this. I just had a job. The people in Iraq were just living their lives. I do get frustrated with people who made this decision. I mean, you sent us to invade the wrong country. Did McLaughlin tell you or at least imply to you what he believed or if there was actually a right country to invade? And if so, what country was that? Did he believe that Afghanistan was, as a lot of people were calling it back in the aughts, the right war as opposed to the war on Iraq? Is that what he was alluding to, that Afghanistan was where we should be and not in Iraq? You know, we we didn't actually talk about uh, that specifically. I think that I get the impression from speaking to him, his thoughts about it, and other other veterans I've spoken to is that they just uh, when you join the army, you kind of lose your politics in a sense. You don't have agency anymore. You kind of become the property of the military, so to speak, in, in large part, or probably the government, you could say. So if they send you anywhere, they expect it to be somewhere where you know there's a good reason that you're sending me there to implement the skills of killing and destroying things that you've taught me to something that defends the, our country something that stops a legitimate threat or gives a clear mission to accomplish something good and attainable anywhere that you go that doesn't have those um, you know very important prerequisites it's gonna be the wrong country it's gonna be your iraq they invaded there was no clear mission uh, there was no threat to the united states they weren't defending the united states uh, there wasn't even not even a clear enemy. No one knew who the enemy was. People didn't even know really much about Iraq, even at the high levels of the U.S. government, about the demography, about the political divisions, and so forth. So they went there and they told them to start doing what they do, and they started doing it. And yet, none of the conditions that were made, you know, that war appropriate existed. And I think that the for people who reflect on it honestly, served in the conflict, and he's one of them, and the many others. Uh, it's kind of hard to escape that. Uh, it was really the wrong place to, to send the U.S. military, and the results attest to that. A friend of mine was a commander in the Navy, and he was involved in the invasion of Panama back in the 80s. And he said, told me one time, there is nothing worse than not having a clear mission and having that mission changed while you are in theater, while you're in a war. He was telling me that 
on the way to Panama. The mission was being changed while paratroopers were in flight to Panama. What What is it about uh, a mission not being clear, a mission uh, being, you know, at least permanent and not something that's ephemeral and able to be changed on a regular basis? How do you think that affects people like McLaughlin? How do you feel that affects military mm-hmm. service members when they their mission is constantly changing and they don't even know what they're really there for? Well, I think that unfortunately the people who you know run the U.S. foreign policy or who've been empowered to run it for the last several decades, they are not very competent. They have, don't have a very realistic understanding of their own abilities and powers and so forth. Uh, they have alternate agendas. They're cynical and so forth. So they commit a very serious, make a very serious commitment to putting. Uh, these men and women in harm's way and also sending them out with the license to kill and all this weaponry, all this equipment all over the world without really fully grasping the gravity of what they're doing or why it's being done or what the, their goals are and so forth. And it really, this, these are perverse outcomes. Uh, I think that it's very interesting in the Iraq war too. A lot of the wars fought by contractors uh, for a number of reasons, to save money, to for corrupt reasons to channel money to private actors who want to prop it up the war. And also for political reasons, because they didn't want to commit a huge number of troop numbers, but still need people. So they start hiring contractors at a higher rate uh, as well. And, you know, these contractors, they you show up there, they're not even notionally committed to any mission per se. They were just there to make money, do a job. And again, it's like almost with no briefing, with no background, with no context why they're there so you know the military is going there without those reasonings and that's only the drop in the bucket of how many people were sent over there without a clear direction or mission as to what they were supposed to be doing so i'm not surprised to hear that others have that experience and unfortunately it seems like a pretty common uh common experience among people who join the military in the u.s uh that's why i do hope that in the future if we fight wars there's a clear reason we're doing it it's a good reason because it's a terrible terrible thing to send people to embark upon. In 2019, former White House spokesperson Ari Fleischer, uh, he was saying that the he was arguing on Twitter that this the Bush administration, or at least President Bush, nor Ari Fleischer lied the United States into the Iraq war. He says that is not the case whatsoever. We didn't lie to anybody. This was an intelligence failure. So to you, what would you say to those who argue that the U.S. was not lied into a war, but that it was an intelligence failure that led to the war? And you certainly can't blame it on President Bush or Ari Fleischer misleading the American public with a set of lies. What would you say to people who argues this was just an intelligence failure? You know, the Iraq war at the time that took place, there was pretty... It was done over the objections of a pretty significant chunk of the U.S. population, also the rest of the world. U.S. allies uh, were not exactly rushing to sign up the war because they're not convinced of the same information that supposedly was so bulletproof and ironclad about weapons of mass destruction that existed at the time. So say it was like a borderline case and that they just kind of made the wrong call. It kind of doesn't comport with what actually took place or the debates that led up to the war. also, they weren't actually making a, a they were they were quite in the public position in the war, they were quite stark and quite uh, hyperbolic, I would say, in outlining what they thought the consequences would be if the war not happening. There's a famous quote by Conley's advice about a mushroom cloud over the United States, implying that there was a 
imminent nuclear threat to the U.S. Uh, from Iraq. But also, you know, even when you, when you indulge all that, in the years after the war, several people who were involved at a very high level of perpetrating it, they kind of, you know, came clean a little bit about the fact that the intelligence was not really the main reason the war happened. The war would have happened maybe even with different intelligence. And Douglas Fight said something like that in 2006 to the effect that, you know, the intelligence failure is not the determinative aspect of it, whether the war is going to happen or not. Uh, there was a different reason for the war to happen, which, you know, you people, others have outlined in the years since, which is that they want to send a message after 9-11, a pretty indiscriminate message that, uh, you know, Afghanistan's not enough. Another country has been taken down. And Tom Friedman, the New York Times journalist, had a very, very revealing quote, which I think is quite accurate. I do encourage people to look it up. He said that they went to Iraq because they could. They wanted to sit, send a message after 9-11 that, uh, this was a big crime and a lot of people are going to suffer for it. And, you know, we need to make a pretty big statement. And this anime statement out of Iraq. But, you know, when you talk about things in abstract like that, it kind of includes the human aspect that people are really going to be dying and Americans are going to be dying, Iraqis are going to be dying. And I don't think that Americans would have accepted that framing. They need to be scared into the war. And they were. So I don't... Uh, I don't really buy that explanation. I think it's a bit self-serving uh, many years after the fact. So one of the things that keeps coming up on our show is that U.S. justice seems to be focused on vengeance. And that seems to be what is happening, what happened when it came to Iraq, what happened uh, as the reaction to 9-11, attacking obviously the wrong country. But this idea of we are going to have justice by having our vengeance, by having revenge against them. What happens to a sense of justice when we only focus on vengeance as its only solution? You know, if they want to take vengeance for 9-11, that's completely fine. But then do it against the perpetrators of 9-11. 9-11 was a very, very big crime. And certainly people who did it uh, deserve to suffer. But people who had nothing to do with it or who even were very opposed to Al-Qaeda and these groups, which... You know, to be honest, was Iraq, where it was a very, very fierce enemy of Al Qaeda. Uh, to impose vengeance on them, it makes no sense. It actually, creates a new cycle of vengeance, whereby the people whose family members are killed or who suffered as a result of the war, they started joining terrorist groups later on to take vengeance on America for that, and then America wanted to take vengeance on them again for the things that some of them did, and so forth. So, you know, I think the, the thing we should look at is justice. So, if someone does something wrong, uh, commits a crime, they should be suffer an appropriate penalty for that. I think that everyone in the world accepts that as a logical response. The Iraq war was responding to a crime by committing another crime against a third party. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's like if the Japan attacked Pearl Harbor and the US, you know, decided to retaliate by attacking China. It made like that much sense. And it's going to be that strange in history books. So I do think that 20 years after the fact, a good thing is that I noticed that the kind of monopoly on the discussion of these issues, the old uh, gatekeepers have really bled a lot of their power as a result of uh, you know being discredited by Iraq and other things. So there's very few people who are really takers for this narrative you mentioned that you know, it was just a mistake, honest mistake, or the war was good. I see a few people making this argument, but it's not a very popular one anymore, at least in the United States. Uh, so yeah, I think we can have conversations like this too, but I think that, you know, it's... Basically, if you're going to, you have to act with justice. And they're not acting with justice. And I think nobody really buys it anymore. And, you know, does people still have faith in U.S. foreign policy and other issues? I think that we can look at it on a case-by-case basis. But certainly in the Middle East, the track record has been a very, very ugly one. And uh, Iraq is just the, the crowning uh, achievement, so to speak, of uh, U.S. foreign policy.
But as you know, nobody was ever held accountable for us being misled into a war in Iraq on very flimsy evidence that was exaggerated by the Bush administration. President Obama, once he took office and they, he was being asked if the Bush administration was going to be held accountable or responsible for the policy of torture, he immediately said on his first day in office, we are moving forward. We are not about looking backwards. What do you think is or what will be the legacy of not holding anyone accountable for misleading the United States into a, a war with Iraq the nation that did not attack the United States on 9-11. It's ridiculous. It's honestly, it's, I don't know how to explain it. If I were to explain somebody outside the context, uh, it's very difficult to make any sense out of it. And, you know, I think that the insisting also that the WMDs were an honest mistake many, many years after the fact, when we know so much of what took place, it's not even a very honest sort of uh you know, attempt to reconcile with reality and so forth. There's a book that came out recently, very interesting book, it's called Confronting Saddam Hussein. It's kind of like, I wouldn't say an apologia for Bush, but sort of like an attempt to rehabilitate Bush's uh, decision-making at the time, saying that he was just so overwhelmed with uh, uncertainty and with distaste for Saddam Hussein at the time, they just made a decision which wasn't very, very well thought out. I think that, you know, it's, the, the, the argument seems to be based more, mostly on talking to former Bush officials and having them say that. But I think it's a very self-serving argument. It doesn't really it doesn't really account for the full environment that we saw at that time. Uh, and I have to say that the lies, the lies that justified the war, the giant lies that continued going after the fact. I think that at that time, we got to see a really ugly picture of what the United States could be uh, at its worst, of, you know, engaging in torture and uh, lying of the type that accuses authoritarian governments of very often. And I would even say further that, you know, the crimes of that era far outstrip the crimes of the Donald Trump era, which I don't endorse and I think are, you know, ample and, uh, you know, and not, not good by any means. But certainly I don't think Trump did anything as bad as the Iraq war in terms of uh, inflicting a large amount of human suffering on innocent people, both Americans and foreigners alike. Do you think the intent of 9-11 by al-Qaeda was to reveal the United States as to what it quote-unquote really is, that is, a war machine that does employ torture and even war crimes within areas where military and mercenaries are set loose without a mission? Do you think that that was the intent of al-Qaeda on 9-11 to make that revealed to the whole world? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think I've I've, I've uh, read a lot of uh, interviews or read documents from Al Qaeda figures, and I think after the war started, they tried to make that argument in retrospect because you know the war was very unpopular, and that seemed to be what was happening. So might as well take credit for it. Uh, I think originally their hope, Osama bin Laden's hope, was that if the U.S. was hit really hard, it would leave the Middle East because he had three. Uh, objectives. He wanted the U.S. to stop supporting Israel, to leave Saudi Arabia, and to lift uh, sanctions on Iraq, uh, which were very devastating at that time and causing a lot of suffering. So, you know, how do you accomplish that? You know, there's a lot of disagreement within the jihadist movement over the time of what to do. Most of them were against hitting Western countries. They said, let's focus on conflict with our local governments. His argument was, if we hit a Western country, which is the reason that these local governments we don't like are in power, the Westerners will realize that, hey, it's not worth it. Let's just get out of here. And they'll stop supporting uh, the Egyptian government, the Saudi government, and so forth, as they were at the time. 
so he was hoping that would happen because a similar thing happened to the Soviets. Not exactly the same, but you know they had a battle in Afghanistan, and then these Arabs took part. It was the foreign jihadists took part. They beat them in a few encounters that Bin Laden was involved in. He got very uh, confident, and he figured that a similar thing could be done with the U.S. Let's hit them where it hurts in the U.S. And then, hey, they'll leave. They'll just, this conflict will be over. 9-11 was the last chapter of the conflict. And really, it was not a very realistic sort of understanding of American culture or American politics. And a lot of his supporters at the time tried to argue him away, argue him away from this. Very interestingly, it seems like it was a minority of opinion in Al-Qaeda, actually, that this was a good idea. And a lot of them were against it. But, you know, it happened. And, you know, the, the war took place. A lot more suffering took place as a result of the war both among Americans and among uh, people in the Middle East. And then after the fact, Bin Laden and uh, Zawahiri and these guys started saying, well, this is our plan all along. We want to draw the U.S. into the region to bleed them and show, make them show their real face. And I do think they did succeed in making the U.S. show a very ugly face. But I don't think that they expected or counted on or wanted uh, you know, this level. This response was not something that they actually asked for. I think they were trying to make themselves seem a bit smarter afterwards. And also, the war in Iraq led to the creation of ISIS. And ISIS was an offshoot of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which is now an enemy of technically of Al-Qaeda as well, too, because it was like a more insane version of Al-Qaeda, far more that was created in the maelstrom of, of the conflict. So I, I don't really think that. I think it's a self-serving narrative by these, these guys. But uh, it certainly has some logic to it, I guess. We are speaking with Murtaza Hussein. Murtaza is a reporter at The Intercept whose writing focuses on national security and foreign policy. You can follow Murtaza on Twitter at Maz M. Hussein and support his work on Substack, as you can tell that you should from what Murtaza has been telling us this morning. Go to mazmhussein.substack.com. You mentioned Dennis Fritz, who served as an U.S. Air Force officer for 28 years before resigning in the early days of the war on Iraq and spending over a decade working at the Warrior Clinic at Walter Reed Military Hospital, helping with the recovery of service members wounded in Iraq and other conflicts. You quote Fritz, who retired from the Air Force at the rank of Master Sergeant and now does writing and public advocacy on behalf of veterans in favor of military restraint, saying, most Americans don't even understand that war is real. We're getting back to that thought of being war being real again, when they are watching it on television again. It is only when they come to Walter Reed to see a family member who lost a limb or had PTSD that they realize we have people who suffer wounds that means it's going to be hell for them for the rest of their lives. Meanwhile, as we now know, Iraq was no threat to us. I'm upset about it to this day because our service members were used as pawns. Pawns in in what? And manipulated by whom? Do they blame politicians from both parties as the House passed the resolution for war 296 to 133 and the Senate 77 to 23? Or because the president was a Republican and Republicans voted more in support of the war than Democrats, do they center their frustration on the Republican Party? Or does it lead to bipartisan animus from the uh, uh, veterans? Are, are they upset more with the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, or is it with the entire system? Uh, you know, from my conversation with him, I think his main uh, anger is at uh, what you call the neoconservatives, uh, the neoconservative uh, wing, which sort of encompasses both parties to some degree, which uh, was very, very uh, adamant about U.S. military engagement in the Middle East. Still is, just doesn't have as much uh, influence anymore because of these debacles. But, you know, 
as he told me, and I think it's pretty common knowledge publicly, is that there was a plan to attack a lot many countries, and that predated 9-11, but 9-11 gave it a impetus to make it more realistic. Uh, Iraq was the first of them, and there was a desire to basically use military force to topple a lot of governments that a few people in the U.S. did not like uh, for various reasons. And, you know, who are the people who have to actually go do that on the ground as American service members? They would have to bear the moral costs of uh, killing and uh, seeing their friends killed, but also uh, themselves being killed in these conflicts. And I don't think that if Americans knew that they would suffer three, almost three 9-11s of casualties in Iraq, uh, they would have agreed to this conflict. It wasn't sold in that way. And certainly the service members, you know, they enlist, most of them, because either there's economic reasons or uh they believe that this will defend their country uh, they want to defend their families and so forth sense of patriotism i think very few of them go into war specifically wanting to engage in aggression for very poorly thought out reasons i think they were deceived they were deceived the wmd talk they were deceived with uh the idea that they were doing something in retaliation for 9-11 which they weren't so at the end of the day, if you, you know, lose your limbs or you lose your friends or you lose your mind in a conflict, and it turns out it was for deceptive reasons, it's a great portrayal. So I think that, you know, it is right to call them pawns in many ways because uh, they were not, uh, they were not read in on the full consequences of what they were embarking on and the reasons behind it. And many of them were very young. They were very young uh, at the time that they were sent out. It was very poorly defined and frankly, immoral mission. You write that many of those responsible for the Iraq War have gone on to enjoy rewarding careers as senior policymakers in Washington or have cashed in on their time in government by taking well-paid roles in the private sector. To you, what explains people who got the war so wrong being retained in their positions, let alone having more success than ever? And what does that reveal to you about the press in the U.S. when those who are wrong about the war on Iraq or those who were wrong about the 2008 Great Recession are rewarded while those who were correct and often ignored by the press are still ignored? Why reward those who were wrong and silence those who were correct? It's a very corrupt, uh, very corrupt media ecosystem. Um, it's very clubby. It's very insular and it's not really about performance it's about you know your friends and who you went to school with and things like that they all support each other they'll hire each other you know they have access to money and power and so forth they're not really about some meritocracy and you know i think that the rise of alternative media as well as the internet has been very good because it's kind of shown that to a greater degree people who are not very talented or not very intelligent maybe have very powerful lucrative positions in the media the old media and, you know, that's fine, but uh, it's certainly nothing to do with uh, their abilities. So if you take part, you get something so wrong in your life, like a war, like that wrong, and all the consequences of that, uh, to not have it impede your ascendance, you know, despite having propagandized for it or advocated for it and so forth, kind of tells you a lot about what's really going on here. This is just a, it's kind of like a very, uh, it's a very corrupt system, you could say. It's a very corrupt system. Uh, where people are rewarded just for being in the right place at the right time and the right people. So I'm not too surprised by it. I do think it's worth commenting on. But yeah, people like David Fromm and Jeffrey Goldberg, whoever else it is, now did not suffer at all for this. They actually benefited quite a bit. Brett Stevens, they benefited a lot from uh, the Iraq War because 
they sent other people to kill and die. They weren't harmed personally. Uh, their careers have not even, you know, dropped a beat on the path of descendants to this day. And, you know, they're still unapologetic about it as a result. And why wouldn't they be? The war was great for them, in fact. The world's largest protests in the history of the world happened on February 15th, just a month prior to the, a month and a few days prior to the invasion and occupation of Iraq. But once those, uh, the war started, those protests disappeared. To you, what explains why those protests were not sustained after the invasion of Iraq? And do you think that would have had any impact on the ongoing war? Well, you know, in the Vietnam War, there was an ongoing protest movement, but I think it's because there was a draft. And because there's a draft, the war continued asking a lot of people over a long time. Uh, there was a lot of impetus to protest. Whereas the Iraq War, unless you serve the military, your family did, you can kind of ignore it. You just turn off the news, you can change the channel, something else. Americans have a lot of distractions that are available to them, and they partook in those as they did many of the time. They went back to normal, so to speak, pretty quickly after 9-11 and the, the invasion. So, you know, absent that, I'm not too surprised that there wasn't any on, more ongoing pressure. There were a lot of people upset about it and didn't like the war, but, you know, you could ignore it. You could Something you could ignore, whereas Vietnam, you really couldn't because there's a chance you might get sent over there and then, you know, you have a stake in it. So I think that making the American people less involved in the war is, is a very, very important point way of making wars continue in a way like minimizing the number of people involved you know making more remote control warfare today less labor-intensive warfare today drones and other technologies cyber warfare they're going to continue advancing in the future it's another way of keeping uh, forever wars autonomous weaponry it's another way of keeping forever wars going is that uh, the less you can ask of people in the broader public uh, the less they will scrutinize you and uh Iraq was a big mistake on the part of its proponents because it asked something of Americans. And I think the wars since then have asked less and less of a smaller group. And there's also the consideration of, as you were pointing out earlier, instead of having a draft now, we have privatization within the military and more of a dependence on mercenaries or, as the press calls them, uh, military contractors for whatever reason. You write 20 years after U.S. troops first invaded Iraq, the classified Iranian intelligence documents, which were leaked to The Intercept and first reported in a series of stories that were published beginning in 2019, shed light on the important question of who actually won the war. One victory emerges clearly from the hundreds of pages of classified documents, Iran. So not that people should be the people of the Middle East, the people of Iraq should be happy about Iran winning that war, but should the people of the region or the people of the world be glad U.S. power in the Middle East has been weakened, or should they be more concerned that Iran gained power? Is the U.S. losing power in the Middle East good or bad for those in the region and globally? Yeah, well, it's a very tough question because, you know, it's really changed the balance of power in Iraq, the U.S. invasion. And there are some, you know, benefits of certain U.S. troop presences, unintended or not, uh, you know, they... So you could say that the U.S. troop presence in northern Syria right now is probably preventing a Turkish invasion of northern Syria to attack the Kurdish enclaves there. It's possible. It's possible. But I, on balance, I would say that the U.S. presence has not been a good one. It's been a very negative one because they're basically there to act. It's like a mafia system where they're acting like an enforcer for their local clients. Like 
Saudi Arabia or Israel or Bahrain or the UAE, these places where these countries, if the US wasn't there acting as their benefactor or something they usually pay for or lobby for in DC, in, in manipulating or capitalizing upon US domestic corruption to get their own benefits. You know, if the US wasn't there, if they couldn't do that, then they might have to act a bit differently. They might have to, you know, come to peaceful terms with their bigger neighbors. They might have to make it stop occupying the West Bank, for instance, as well, too, in the case of Israel. So when they have the U.S. around, and the Amer- I don't think American people want to be there, but when they have U.S. elites around who are able to act as their benefactors, they can do a lot more negative things. They can pursue these really destructive paths. And I don't think it's good for Americans. I don't think it's good for the region. It's caused a tremendous amount of harm to innocent people there. And, you know, the U.S., I think, has three solid interests in the Middle East. Uh, one is protecting uh, energy flows from the region, which are so important to the global economy, uh, preventing uh, terrorism emanating from the region, which is also something which is important to the U.S. and its allies outside the Middle East and, you know, just on the periphery. And then finally, you know, they like to, I guess you could say they want they want state collapse and things like that to happen, which destabilize the system. They can accomplish all those things without a military presence. They could have probably do them better, in fact, in many cases. Uh, U.S. American military presence made America the target of a lot of hatred and a lot of, uh, you know, dreams of revenge and a lot of negative sentiments, which, you know, are not really the fault of ordinary Americans, but they've been dragged into it by the government doing things that they haven't paid attention to or didn't know about and so forth. I think the best thing to do for the U.S. is to leave the region and be a good example of democracy at home if they actually care about promoting democracy anywhere else. Focus on being a good example of that at home and then, uh, you know, having peaceful trade, having peaceful relations, not being an unfair arbiter in these conflicts, just being an actual peaceful arbiter. You know, China, which many has many objectionable things about its political system, the deeply, deeply objectionable things, because they're at least fair or try to be fair in the Middle East, they could broker a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. They can act as a guarantor for that. The U.S. can do that. The U.S. has to, the U.S. always seeks to foment more conflict or to drive more conflict, to take one side against the other, view things as a Marvel movie, uh, good and evil and so forth, without any appreciation of the complexities. That's been a very, very ugly and unhappy approach, and I, I do believe it should come to an end for Americans' sake and also for Middle Easterners. So is that driven by a policy of wanting to be the only superpower in the world to being uh, to global domination when it comes to the United States policy? Do you think that's what drives that difference between the United States and China? Well, you know, I don't even think so. I think that it's uh, a lot of it is just the U.S. political system is very corrupt. Foreign policy is an area you can really pay to play in, in Washington, D.C., and the American people are not very interested. So if you combine those three factors, uh, you can get a lot of perverse outcomes. And American foreign policy, at least, has nothing to do with American uh, American interests. It's very little to do with American interests. It's about the interests, but people play, paying to use the U.S. military as like a mercenary force for their own interests, uh, manipulating their friends in D.C. to get them to do that. And, you know, people who join the military for good reasons, people who join because they want to defend their country, they ended up being used as mercenaries for this uh, very, very corrupt foreign policy. Use as pawns, as, uh, as Mr. Fritz said in that article, 
uh, that's the really tragic and unfortunate thing. It's uh, none of the advertised reasons, no defensible reason in U.S. interest <laughs> for, this, for the vast majority of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. It's a, basically the outcome of a very corrupt process. I would say even more corrupt than a lot of things happen in the country because, you know, there are a lot of things happen in the United States that Americans are interested in, they pay attention to, they, you have to answer to them if you get it wrong. In the Middle East, in the foreign policy generally, you can screw everything up, you can really cause a lot of havoc, you can be very corrupt, and people don't really notice, so you can get away with it. You point to a massive two-volume study published in 2019 by the U.S. Army War College which came to a conclusion stating that an emboldened and expansionist Iran appears to be the only victor of the conflict. You also point out that the War College study states, in the conflict's immediate aftermath, the pendulum of American politics swung to the opposite pole with deep skepticism about foreign interventions. But how skeptical are we about foreign interventions when the U.S. is currently engaged in wars in Somalia, Yemen, Syria, and Niger? Those are likely not the only places where the U.S. military is currently engaged. After all, in November, New York University School of Law's Brennan Center for Justice released a report called Secret War, how the U.S. uses partnerships and proxy forces to wage war under the radar. The report states that if you ask the average American where the United States has been at war in the past two decades, they might answer... Afghanistan, Iraq, maybe Libya, you would likely get this short list, according to the report. But this list is wrong. Off at least 17 countries in which the United States is engaged in armed conflict through ground forces, proxy forces, or airstrikes. So how skeptical are we of war when we are not seeing protests against these other conflicts? And, and do we not have that skepticism because the U.S. media is ignoring those wars? Yeah, well, you know, I, what I find is that as long as no U.S. service members are dying, then people, they don't even know what's happening. They don't pay attention to it. They're not incentivized to pay attention. In U.S., in, in the Iraq War, sorry, the U.S. had a lot of casualties and it drew a lot of attention. They learned that, you know, if you're going to continue fighting wars, if they want to, do it remotely, use local proxies, try to egg on civil wars in other countries, arm sides against each other and so forth, encourage it. The fight that way. That's the more that's the way of war that the US fights today as well, too. And you know, sometimes maybe it's more appropriate than others, but uh generally speaking, at least in this region, it's been very, very negative. Uh and you know, now also there's a Ukraine war. I think the optics of the Ukraine war are more positive. Uh there is you know a defensible narrative that's war self-defense against an aggressor with another country, in this case, which is Russia. So I think that war is quite popular, and I think the reasons for that are understandable for the most part. Uh, but I don't think that Americans would be very happy about it if U.S. soldiers were dying in the conflict. As long as Ukrainians are dying, then all the U.S. has to do is write checks and test out weapons. I think they're happy with that. But I think there's a very, very low tolerance for another uh, major conflict where the U.S. service members die. Uh, and there's going to be kind of skepticism of that for a long time. You also recently posted the Intercept article after tide of memoirs from Americans and Iraqi journalists offers inside account of war's destruction, a review of the new book by Gaith Abdullahad, uh, who uh, the book is titled A Stranger in My Own City Travels in the Middle East Long War. In it, you quote Abdullahad writing, the occupation was bound to collapse and fail. A nation can't be bombed, humiliated and sanctioned, then bombed again and then told to become a democracy. 
Why not? The U.S. government and the majority of its uh, public seem to believe it could be. Why can't you force a country to become a democracy at the end of the barrel of a gun? And what does it say about the United States when we believe that we can force another country to become a democracy through a military conflict? Yeah, this is very, if you think about it, it's a very ridiculous claim in the first place because, uh, you know, a democracy, basically, it's a voluntary arrangement for the most part. The people can spend a lot of time thinking about coming to an end of a peaceful process, sending a bunch of 19-year-olds into a country with guns and killing a lot of people. And where they don't speak the language and reorganizing things using a lot of violence and money within a couple of years, that can result in a democracy. Is there any democracy in the world where that's actually happened? Uh, I, mean, I don't really think so. A democracy didn't create from scratch as a result of a process like that. Uh, I, it's a very ridiculous claim. I suppose say, well, in World War II, there was, you know, Japan and Germany came out of that as democracies of, of a sort. But, you know, they were, Germany was occupied for like 50, 60 years with no conflict. And, you know, there was a partition in the country. There was a Cold War. They were very managed. It was a very managed system. And also the rest of the region was already on board with this. They were already all destroyed on board with the same the same uh the same program the u.s could speak it had a lot greater capacity to speak the language locally and so forth they didn't do crazy things like the, dissolving the army and things like that to form an insurgency so i don't think they're really comparable situations for, for many many reasons and i think that you know there's a lot of hangover from that period in american popular culture they thought hey we can just do that in the middle east we just sort of blow up around the country and then set it up in two, three years, like Japan, and we'll get out of there. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's a ridiculous sort of claim, especially when most people, they were not really thinking that way anyways on a ground level. They're thinking about revenge and defending the country and so forth. It was like using democracy as just a, a brand for whatever the U.S. did. I don't think they ever really intended to set up democracy in Iraq. They sort of did, in a way, if you define democracy as having elections. There are elections in Iraq today, but their elections which like most democracies in the world, sadly, they're kind of like a parody for what we think of democracy. They're more like, well, you know, this gang has all this money and they're gonna, you're gonna vote for them. That's your option here. And if you don't vote for them, it's not be good for you, that type of thing. And even if you vote for them, they're all on the same page anyways, they're all stealing money on their own, on their own anyways. And, you know, this is kind of a Hobbes' choice, you could say. So I think they set up a, a fake democracy like that in Iraq. and. You know, people in Iraq are not very happy with it. It's a very rich country in oil and so forth. The oil is all stolen by the elites, a very small number of people. And you don't have the participatory institutions of democracy, whether you have elections or not. It takes a long time to build those up. You need peace to build them up. You need a lot of, uh, a lot of energy to build them up uh, in a stable situation. It doesn't exist in Iraq. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's hard to imagine a democracy coming about there in the way we imagine the term. So did the U.S. not necessarily not export democracy to Iraq, but instead they exported inequality, poverty, massive wealth in the hands of the few? Did they not export democracy, but instead export neoliberalism? They export neoliberalism? Absolutely. They even during the occupation, they said they took specific steps to make sure that Iraq had what you call a free market economy without subsidies and without uh, protections for industries, destroyed a lot of Iraqi industries, agriculture and so forth, which are already suffering under sanctions and so forth. Uh, they exported a very degraded version of uh, American democracy, you could say, to Iraq. Far, far more brutal and more exploitative version. 
And that's what exists today in Iran. You can imagine if someone else invaded the United States, if China invaded the United States after you know a war or something was let's say an English terrorist attacked China and then China decided to invade America because they had the kind of the same type of thing. And then they decide to dissolve the government, dissolve the military, dissolve the police forces and so forth, then arm some, you know, biker gangs and like the bloods and give them weapons and uh, uniforms and so forth and say, well, you're in charge now and make sure it's democracy and then we're out now. That's kind of what they did in Iraq. And now these gangs and militias control the country and how they'll ever lose power is very difficult for me to see. But uh you know, they certainly have it today and they have the monopoly and force you might need to uh, ensure that continues. And they also, you know, one of the things that we were being told in the run up to the Iraq war was that Sunni and Shia had been in a conflict for thousands of years and there was nothing that the United States could ever do to stop that conflict. But as you point out, uh, the United States... They created that Shia Sunni sectarianism. People used to live side by side without any problems, even though the Sunni, that Saddam Hussein was Sunni and the vast majority or over 60 percent of the public was Shia. They still lived together in, you know, relative harmony. Uh, You write that much of this havoc was catalyzed by foreign soldiers and mercenaries, Abdul Ahad writes in his memoir, who were often openly racist toward the people they claimed they were liberating. With no one in charge, save for a trigger-happy foreign occupier with no plan to restore basic services, Iraq slowly descended into Mad Max-style chaos. Did the U.S. export racism to Iraq? Did the U.S. lose the war in Iraq due to racism? Well, you know, in Iraq, there there are divisions in Iraq in terms of your religious divisions, your ethnic divisions, and so forth. I think the war exacerbated them a lot. And I think that, to go back to the U.S. example, you know, there are divisions in the U.S. There are racial divisions, there are class divisions, there are religious divisions. Uh, but, you know, they don't rise to the level of civil war because there's stability. And if you were to break down the stability and keep bringing down violence for a couple of years, you might have like a civil war in the U.S. based on race because those tensions and latent tensions can really be exacerbated quite quickly in a very dangerous way. And that's what the U.S. did in Iraq. They, uh, every society has fault lines and they basically generated earthquake that broke the fault lines apart. What he wrote in the book, a lot of interesting, he was, didn't know what the religious backgrounds of his friends were in school. And he, after the war, he tried to figure it out and he couldn't. He didn't know what they were because it never came up. It was not something that people knew about each other. Just like I don't think most Americans know whether their friends are Protestant or Catholic today necessarily. It's kind of just something which maybe you can kind of dig back in your history and figure it out. But most people aren't really at the front of their mind when they talk to people. What he wrote is that after a few years of war, it became in front of the mind. He had to put he had to put it in his phone what sect the person was before he went to see them because he didn't want to make a mistake and uh, it could be a very dangerous mistake. And it became the most important thing in society. And it took some time for that to happen. Uh, you know, that's that's the danger which you can do when you cause such havoc in society. You can create a security dilemma where people have to resort back to these sort of very primal identities just to survive. One last question for you, Murtaza. We have been speaking with Murtaza Hussein. He is a reporter at The Intercept whose writing focuses on national security and foreign policy. Go to The Intercept and search on Murtaza's name and see all of his recent writing. You can follow Murtaza on Twitter at Maz M. Hussein and support his work on Substack. Please support his work on Substack at mazmhussein.substack.com. 
Our final uh, question for each and every one of our guests, Murtaza, is the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write, instead of freedom from Saddam's predictable tyranny, the U.S. invasion delivered violent anarchy, extrajudicial killings, torture, warrantless detention, and the destruction of Iraq's basic infrastructure. What if the United States had not engaged in extrajudicial killing, torture, warrantless detention, and the destruction of Iraq's basic infrastructure? Could the U.S. have, whatever it means, won the war in Iraq instead of Iran winning that war? Did the criminality of the U.S. occupation lose the war on Iraq for the U.S.? And if so, why the criminality? Well, I think if you were to narrow down to one specific thing that could have uh, changed the course of the war in Iraq, not dissolving the Iraqi army is something that Paul Bremer, who was essentially the viceroy of Iraq, did uh, shortly after the occupation started. They dissolved the Iraqi army. Hundreds of thousands of men were basically, with military training, were basically uh, kicked out of their jobs and told them that, you know, you're not going to provide your families anymore. Uh, You're not the enemy of the new country we're governing. And that created hundreds of thousands of new enemies, as David Petraeus uh, later said, that one decision. Had that happened, I think that, you know, they could have partnered with the Iraqi army to keep basic law and order and stability in the country. Uh, they didn't, and they turned Iraq into basically a violent anarchy, which got worse and worse and never really recovered from that one decision. Do I think that would have made the war successful on its own? It's hard to say. It's counterfactual. But uh I certainly think that it's much more plausible. And there was actually a U.S. general, Jay Garner, who recommended that. It's like, if you're going to do this, let's, you know, keep the Iraqi army institutionally around because it's very easy to destroy institutions. very hard to build them back up. They never succeeded in building in Iraq, restoring law and order to Iraq, really, in the way they existed after that decision. So one thing they could have done differently among all things is that and, uh, we may have had a different, uh, a different conversation today. Murtaza, thank you so much for being on our show. You can follow Murtaza on Twitter at Maz M. Hussein. Support his work on Substack at mazmhussein.substack.com. Thank you very much for giving us a rather enlightening conversation on the commemoration of the 20th anniversary of the war in Iraq. Thanks so much for being on our show. Thanks a lot. Take care. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong, this is hell if what you just heard from Murtaza on the Bush administration killing democracy in the Middle East. If that made you realize, yes, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, and uh, what you can hear, I think, Thursday morning? I think we're doing it Thursday morning at 10 a.m. this week in his podcast shortly after patreon.com slash thisishell, or you can show your support for a completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, this week in Rotten History. In Rotten History, March 27th, 1977, 46 years ago this week in the Canary Islands, a heavily touristed Spanish dependency off the coast of Morocco, home to more than 2 million people. And that's also where my sister discovered a butterfly that nobody had ever discovered before, and she named it after my mom. Pretty cool, right? So in the Canary Islands, a bombing by members of a militant separatist group forced a temporary shutdown of the island's largest airport. And that's rotten history. Oh, wait, there's more to this story. Air traffic was diverted to a smaller airport on the nearby island of Tenerife, which quickly became overcrowded with jet airliners just as clouds of fog rolled in, making visibility difficult. 
It sounds like this history is about to get a lot more rotten and fast. Amid all the fog and congestion, 50-year-old Captain Jakob Felthusen von Zanten, one of the most highly respected civil pilots of the Netherlands, and being highly respected is another bad sign mentioned in Rotten History, Jakob Felthusen von Zanten was at the helm of the KLM Boeing 747 jumbo jet. The tower had given him permission to repeat depart from the terminal, and due to a combination of miscommunication and radio interference, he incorrectly believed he had been given clearance to take off. His younger co-pilot was not so sure, but was too intimidated to correct him. Meanwhile, another 747 jumbo jet, owned by the long-defunct, now long-defunct U.S. carrier Pan Am, was still on the fog-shrouded runway. As the KLM plane accelerated to take off speed, its crew, to their horror, saw the Pan Am jet suddenly appear in the fog, dead ahead. They knew they could not stop in time to avoid hitting it. In desperation, felt Husen von Zanten, hoping to leapfrog the other jet, pulled the nose of his jet upward so violently that its tail scraped the runway. And when flying a jumbo jet, try not to play leapfrog over another jet, especially when both are jumbo-sized. The move might have worked if the KLM jet had not been carrying an extra heavy load of fuel, for whatever reason. I assume they were going to be on a very long flight. It left the ground for just a moment, hit the upper fuselage on the Pan Am plane, lost two engines, went into a stall, and then crashed and exploded. All its 248 passengers and crew were killed, including Captain Felthusen von Zanten. Another 335 people on the Pan Am plane were also killed, leaving 61 survivors, and all those survivors were just on the Pan Am plane. Although the Canary Islands accident basically happened on the ground, it remains the most deadly aircraft disaster in rotten history. 583 killed total, with only 61 survivors. That's less than 1 in 10. And on the Pan Am jet, nearly 1 in 6 were killed. And I cannot imagine the horror those survivors go through every day, because I also can't imagine there is any way you can possibly forget about something that terrifying and deadly. Also in Rotten History on April 1st, April Fool's Day, 1944. Ooh, bad year for any April Fool's Day. 79 years ago this week, amid the fog... What's with rotten history and fog? Apparently, a lot of rottenness happens in the fog. Amid the fog of World War II, oh, the metaphorical fog, not the weather event, I get it. Some 50 U.S. B-24 bombers dropped 60 tons of explosives on the town of Schaufhausen in northern Switzerland. The B-24 was known as the Liberator, which seems like a cruel joke by Consolidated Aircraft, Lockheed Martin Legacy Company, just like the entire military-industrial complex is a cruel joke pulled over on us, all of us every day, and dropping bombs from a liberator on a town in Switzerland, which was a neutral nation during World War II, sounds even more cruel. The bombing was an accident, of course, attributed to a navigation error brought on by bad weather, as Schaffenhausen, or Schaffhausen lay about 150 miles up the Rhine River from the bombing group's intended German target. Switzerland had uh, kept some economic ties with Germany, allowing its banks to act as a safe harbor 
for loot stolen by the Nazis because that's what a global capital of banking does, allows anyone, even those in the middle of a holocaust, to bank within their borders and their banks. No wonder the World Economic Forum holds their annual meetings in Switzerland every year. But despite being located right in between Germany and fascist Italy, the small country had remained officially neutral in the war. And who knew you could buy yourself out of a war with money? Oh yeah, everybody. The April Fool's Day bombing of Schaffhausen was not the only time the Swiss were bombed by mistake, but it was the worst. Forty people were killed with some 270 injured. That's the worst April Fool's Day ever. And that's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Alex, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell, and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Oh, hold on a second. We get to this butterfly. What's the name of this butterfly so everyone can look it up? Oh, my God. You, I don't all I know is that in its name is the name Doris McCraven, M-C-C-R-A-V-E-N. That's all I know. My sister made it. It's a long Latin word. There's no way I could remember it. But she found this insect, and she's, I said, so is it difficult to discover a butterfly in the Canary Islands? And she said, no. You take a net, and you sweep in any direction, and you will find many bugs that are not in any catalogs whatsoever, just because there's so many in the Canary Islands and around the world that haven't been discovered. So i got to look up this bug. Yeah, I'm All right, have uh, to ask so, my sister. So, Quest from Hell... What are you By the way, go to the, uh, go to my sister's website, Insect Identifier. If you ever have an insect that you can't identify, send a picture to her, and she will tell you exactly what that insect is. What are you repressing? What are you repressing uh, via Twitter? Fake as F says, your mom. It's the one of the four I chose to read from <laughs> Fake AF. What are you repressing? Uh, now let's tab over to Facebook. What are you repressing? Nick A says, I am repressing my face against a copy machine to make stupid self-portraits. <laughs> Wait, who's that? Uh, Nick A. Yeah, I like that. Mark A says, repressing your recent excellent episode about cobalt mining because I want to buy a new iPad. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> John T says, my pants. They got so wrinkled. What are you repressing? Kim G says, if I only knew. Fabio L, the void. SLS says, Succumbing to the salacious suggestions of the demon on my butt. <laughs> and finally, what are you repressing? Neil C. says, two ounces paranoia, one ounce hysteria, and a dash of guilt. No, I'm not a drinker. <laughs> Any more? That's it. All right, so the answers I liked most were, and Alex, feel free to chime in on which you think was the best. I like Edson C. saying the urge to destroy the entire hellish system. Andrew Moore saying uh, every last urge. Uh, Paul F. saying the impulse to end every single conversation with the problem is capitalism. Uh, Dean T. saying my Neanderthal genes. I liked Rodov on uh, Discord saying the urge to kill time. All these things about repressing their shirts and slacks. I'm just going to throw all those away. Kim G. saying if I only knew. Uh, Neil C. saying two ounces of paranoia, one ounce of hysteria, and a dash of guilt. No, I am not a drinker. And finally, uh, fake as F, an urge to masturbate in public. Any of those really stick out to you, Alex? Uh, sorry, I've been looking at butterflies this whole time. <laughs> any of those that really stick out to you, though, do you, that you read today? Uh, not any of the ones about masturbating in public. Keep, <laughs> keep repressing that one. Thank you. Okay, so I am going to go with... An impulsive impulse to end every single conversation with the problem 
is capitalism. That was on Patreon from Paul F. Paul, you are the winner of this week's Question from Hell. All you have to do is contact us and tell us a piece of This Is Hell merchandise that you can see right now at thisishell.com when you click on support. Which one you want, send us your mailing address and we will put that in the mail post-haste. Congratulations. Just tell us again what piece of merchandise you want where you can see it at thisishell.com and you click on support. My answer to this week's question from hell, what are you repressing? If repression, as the cartoon we shared with the question on social media states, is unconsciously denying our impulses, I guess Kim G is correct when she answers, if I only knew. So, I am repressing my urge to trip balls in order to consider to fig- my, or figure out what it is that I am actually repressing. Because honestly, as I'm still not quite out of the woods when it comes to my recovery from surgery a year ago, tripping balls seems like a really, really bad idea. So thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell, keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell. And if you want to keep help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a subscriber to this is hell on Patreon and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams weekly and is podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash this is hell. This week's Patreon, we will be uh, sharing the third and final part of our three-week series commemorating the 20th anniversary of the war on Iraq. So we're going to be playing an interview from just a few weeks before the war when we spoke with Ahmad Kaduri, who worked with the Iraqi Atomic Energy Commission for 30 years until 1998 when he was able to leave Iraq with his family. Ahmad, who had first-hand knowledge of Iraq's nuclear program, had just written a four-part series on the weapons inspections that had failed to find any WMD in Iraq. Also on Patreon, this week's question from hell is, what are you repressing? And I do have an answer that I'll be sharing at the end. I, I did have the answer that I, I, I've shared today at the end of the show uh, that I just shared. However, on my walk over here to the studio, I realized there's something else I'm repressing and repressing a lot harder than considering what I am repressing. But you can only find out what that is by becoming a subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. The only way you can hear me do all of that is subscribing to Patreon. If you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, not only do you get a special code word giving you a discount on all of our merchandise that you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, but you also get access to over 350 past Patreon podcasts. That's like two years or maybe even three years of additional This Is Hell with each and every one featuring a monologue by me and a classic interview that currently is unavailable anywhere else online. Again, that's patreon.com slash thisishell. So this is when I normally ask the producer who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell. However, due to scheduling issues, this is the last show for the week other than Patreon, which you can hear again, patreon.com slash thisishell. As for next week, we are taking our spring break, or in our case, a semi-break, as we will be here offering new content Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday with another Patreon podcast on Thursday. However, we are playing interviews from the vault. Specifically, it's This Is Hell, The Lost Pandemic Tapes, Volume 2. We played Volume 1 in January, and people really enjoyed it because they thought it gave them a perspective that they did not have after reconsidering what we were discussing three years ago at the beginning of the pandemic. And you might remember that back in January when we went back three years, the very beginning of the pandemic here in the U.S., and found shows that never aired before on our home station, WNUR. 
those shows never got on WNUR because in January 2020, we uh, were suddenly, or I'm sorry, not in January 2020, but in March 2020, we were not allowed on the campus of Northwestern University where our show originates, let alone in the university radio studios. This went on for about six months before we finally got access to the station and returned to airing new shows on Chicago's Sound Experiment. So next week during our spring semi-break, we will be playing three more interviews from the first few months of the pandemic that never aired before on WNUR, including Erin Hato, who is on to talk about her book, Coerced, Work Under Threat of Punishment, which was an exceptional discussion when it comes to essential workers that were no longer being seen as essential. Helen Yaffe, we're also going to be playing that interview with Helen Yaffe, author of We Are Cuba, How Revolutionary People Have Survived in a Post-Soviet World. And she talked about how COVID was affecting the people of Cuba and what Cuba's healthcare system was doing to protect Cubans from the virus. We'll also play an interview with Malcolm Harris about his book. So the whole title is Profanities. So let me do this in a dumb way. S is effed up and BS. Does that help? Can anybody do the crossword there? History of the end of history. So that's what we're going to be playing next week. I will be here in studio. We will still have all the segments that we usually do, except for Rotten History and Moment of Truth. So tune in next week during our best of, which is known as the lost tapes of the uh, early pandemic, interviews that we were unable to play at WNUR because everyone was on lockdown. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry, but before, before we go, a little bit of natural sound of me opening up an envelope from the good people at Kennedy Prince in the McDougal Hunt neighborhood of Detroit on Detroit's east side. These are conservative anarchist uh, printers who send us a random beautiful piece of graphics every so often. This week's is a quote from George Washington Carver, and it says, It is simply service that measures success. Interesting. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>